Welcome to another edition of Fair Territory. And I thought after the deadline, things would get quieter, wouldn't have as much to talk about. Ha! We've got plenty to talk about this week, of course, starting with the brawl, but we'll get into that. We've also got wildcard races. We've got the collapse of the Angels. We've got post-deadline reviews, all kinds of things going on. But of course, I want to start with the biggest story of the week. And yes, it was what went down Saturday night in Cleveland. Jose Ramirez versus Tim Anderson, technical knockout. The first thing I want to mention here is Tom Hamilton's brilliant call on the Guardians radio network. Down goes Anderson. To do that in the moment, seconds after the fight actually started, it's actually astonishing to me that he would do that, that he would have the presence of mind to just come up with that line, which of course evokes Howard Cosell's great call, George Foreman versus Joe Frazier. I was a young child when this happened. That was the down goes Frazier line. Tom Hamilton, give him the Frick Award right now. He's been a finalist before, but give it to him for that alone. It was amazing. Now, for the fight itself and for what happened, a couple of things stood out to me most. One was what Jose Ramirez said after the game about why this kind of got started. And he said Tim Anderson has been disrespecting the game for a while. Now, what he was talking about with regard to that particular series was Friday night when Anderson applied a hard tag on the Guardians rookie Brian Rocio. And Saturday, when, according to Terry Francona, Anderson was chirping at Gabriel Arias. Now, we talk about letting the kids play, letting players' personalities show. And I'm all for that. A lot of fans are all for that. And yet, there is a line. There's always going to be a line. And that line is not being drawn, in this particular case, by an old-fashioned sports writer, some fuddy-duddy fans, some people who don't have a sense of the modern player. No, it's being drawn by one of Tim Anderson's peers, one of the biggest stars in the game, actually, Jose Ramirez. Used to be in this sport, players police themselves. And it was a healthy thing in many ways. It was unhealthy and that players sometimes got hurt when guys threw at each other. We all understand that. But there is something to be said for what happened here. And Jose Ramirez evidently decided enough was enough. So you never want to see players get hurt under any circumstances. That's not something anyone would want to encourage. But at the same time, this is an example of, again, players policing themselves and one player saying to another, physically, as it turns out, we're not going to take that anymore. So that was one thing that stood out. The other thing, and this is actually a little bit more meaningful to me, what the heck has happened to Tim Anderson? And I'm talking more about Tim Anderson as a player, not as a guy. He's had a horrible year. And I go back to the WBC. This was just in March, what, five months ago. He was the talk of the WBC. I wrote a glowing column about Tim Anderson and the way he was playing. I quoted Mark DeRosa, the manager, as saying, out of any player, any player on the U.S. team in the WBC, he has grown on me the most. Michael Young, one of DeRosa's coaches, called Tim Anderson a flat-out competitor. Mike Trout, one of the biggest stars in the game, said of Tim Anderson, he's a star. There's no other way to put it. Tim Anderson in the WBC played second base out of position. He had an 880 OPS or so, only, I know, 18 at-bats, whatever it was. But he was brilliant. And then the season started. He missed some time with a sprained left knee. Okay. But he has not been the same player. And I want to show you some numbers that will demonstrate this. 
The rise and fall, actually the fall of Tim Anderson. Those were his career numbers up top. 283 batting average, 98 career home runs, 740 career OPS. This year, 244 batting average, one home run, 576 OPS. That is the lowest among qualified hitters. Now, Tim Anderson, the White Sox hold a club option on him for next season. I would not be surprised to see him traded this offseason with the club option. The team that gets him can exercise it if the White Sox don't exercise it first, however they want to do it. It's just stunning to see his fall. And, of course, this fight and his fall and his fight kind of exemplified all that. He needs to get it back going somehow. And I don't know what it's going to take. And I know he had some tweets that were kind of vague and cryptic over the weekend. Tim Anderson can be and was and should be a big, big time star in this game. And I hope we see that again from Tim Anderson. All right, moving on here. Let's go to more on-field matters, shall we say. The National League Wild Card Race. And I put race in quotes because, yeah, I don't know, it's kind of a sputtering affair right now. And let's look at the standings, first of all, to show you just how odd this has become in terms of what the race is. All right, the Cubs, of all teams, a team that almost sold but did not, now tied for the third wildcard position with the Reds. The Cubs have won 13 of 16. They're also a game and a half out of first place in the Central with the Reds. But look at the other teams. The Reds, losers of six straight since the deadline. The Marlins, losers of four straight. The Diamondbacks, losers of six straight and I believe 22 of 29. These teams have just fallen apart. And then there are the Padres, who every time you think they're kind of coming, they don't. So I fully expect still that the Padres are going to charge in this race. They have too much talent. And they did some nice things at the deadline to supplement their roster. Things that I've complained about in the past with them that they haven't done. Building a coherent 26-man roster. They built around the edges at the deadline instead of going for their latest star. So I do expect with the collapses of the Reds, Diamondbacks, and Marlins that the Padres are eventually going to slip into this thing somehow. I also expect some of those teams to revive a little bit. And we'll talk more about that in the Inside Dish segment and their actions at the deadline, those sagging clubs and what happened. But it's all in front of the Padres. This is a line that managers often say this time of year. You've heard it from Aaron Boone with the Yankees. It's all in front of us. It is all in front of the Padres. There are no excuses. If they get beat out by these low-revenue teams that are ahead of them, shame on the Padres. It's ridiculous already. They should be a much better club. And yet, here they are again, chance to go to 500 on Sunday Night Baseball. They fall on their faces. They're two under. It is time for this team to finally get going. Of course, we've been saying this for four months, but with less than two months left, I would think that, yes, it's time for the Padres to really finally make their move. No excuses. Let's go. All right, finally, let's talk about another team that is absolutely collapsing, a team that went all in at the deadline, did not trade Shohei Otani, dealt a bunch of prospects, and, of course, is... Again, performing like they've performed really for the past decade. I'm talking about the Los Angeles Angels. The Los Angeles Angels have lost six straight since the deadline. Seven of nine. They entered the deadline 56 of 51 
with a 19.5% chance of making the playoffs. Not bad. Now they're 56 and 57, below 500, down to about a 2.2% chance of making the playoffs. Now, Phil Nevin said what he had to say after their latest loss, and of course a manager is going to say what he said just here. I want you to take a look at this quote. Here's Phil Nevin. I know everybody is now done with us and counted us out. That's fine. We've got 26 guys in there plus staff that know we have it. They know we're still there. They know what's in front of us. There's that phrase. Phil Nevin is right, but here's the problem. The Angels still don't have Mike Trout. He should be back at some point in the next couple of weeks. And the other problem is their schedule is rough. Let's take a look at what they've got right in front of them pretty much for the rest of this month. Three versus the Giants, three at Houston, three at Texas, their two biggest division rivals and two likely playoff teams. Actually, these are all likely playoff teams. Then three at home against Tampa Bay, three at home against Cincinnati. That is really difficult. That's 15 games ahead of them. So we all knew the danger of the Angels' strategy in keeping Otani and trading for all the pieces that they did. And the danger was that they might not get there. They probably would not get there. The odds were against them. They had basically a one in five chance, if that. But here they are. It's already disintegrated faster than anyone could have imagined. Will they play meaningful games in September? I'm not so sure at this point. And while the Angels might say, okay, we traded a ton of prospects, but really we didn't have a great system. And of the prospects we traded, probably only the catcher, Edgar Cuero, was the only big-time guy. He went to the White Sox in the Giolito trade with Ronaldo Lopez coming back as well. Okay, that's fine. But here's the flaw in that theory. One, if you keep all those players, some of them will develop into better players than you think. It will also keep your depth intact for future trades when you actually might have a better chance of doing some things. It just leaves you, in a sense, barren. Now, I don't expect most of the players they traded to become major league contributors, much less stars. But at the same time, to say you didn't hurt the organization by doing this, well, the original sin was keeping Otani at last year's deadline, 2022, when you could have cashed in, when you could have made the Juan Soto trade. From there, they've just compounded it. And I understood when they decided not to trade Otani, and I understood all the reasons for that. At that point, okay, you go for it. You might as well not go halfway, right? But this was the risk. This was the danger. This was the choice they made and the chance that they took. It's going to backfire. I'd be shocked if they came out of this. And it's just something that, frankly, we all saw coming. Time now for the Inside Dish. This is the segment in which we go inside a story I've written, inside a trend in the game. This week, though, I want to go kind of backwards, go back to the deadline and go inside the deadline and kind of revisit some of the things that have happened and some of the outcomes that already have taken place. You had some fan bases that were rather upset with the conduct of their teams, and understandably so. You had some teams that didn't do a whole lot. And I'm going to start off talking about two of those teams. Because both of these teams, while they didn't do a whole lot, they're actually coming out of this pretty well. The first of those is the Minnesota Twins. The Twins needed a right-handed hitter. They needed more bullpen help, and Aaron Gleeman of The Athletic wrote a scathing and appropriate column 
about their lack of activity at the deadline. Well, here are the Twins. They've won five of six since the deadline versus the Cardinals and the Diamondbacks. And the rest of the division, we know this, got weaker. Guardians traded Savali and Rosario. The Tigers traded Lorenzen. The Royals, Chapman and Barlow. And Nicky Lopez. And the White Sox, they traded everybody. So part of the Twins' lack of urgency was due to the fact that they knew the division was basically coming apart around them. And they knew that they'd be okay if their better players started performing well. We still haven't seen that, really, from Correa and Buxton. So much of what the Twins are built on depends on those guys. But they've gotten contributions from younger players, Walner and Julian, some others. So the Twins are in a commanding position in the AL Central. Did they do enough to maybe win a round of the playoffs, which we haven't seen them do in a while? No, but they're in decent shape. Then there are the Mariners a team that actually traded its closer for the second time in three years. Paul Sewald, he was the one who went this time. He went to the Diamondbacks. And they didn't do much else. Didn't trade Teoscar Hernandez. Didn't really buy at all. And you wonder, what the heck are the Mariners doing? Now, I know they got some pieces back for Sewald. Okay, I get it. But the Mariners were a team that people were wondering, what are they doing? They were in the playoffs last year for the first time in forever. And now they're just kind of... Sitting there stagnant? Well, the Mariners, they've won five of six. They're in pretty good shape right now. And it goes to show you again that sometimes keeping it together is not such a bad thing. One more team I want to talk about before I get into some other stuff with some teams that have not fared as well. The Dodgers. Now, the Dodgers, as I wrote about last week, they didn't get Eduardo Rodriguez. They had a deal in place. He vetoed it, invoking his no-trade rights to that particular team. He had a 10-team no-trade list. They have pitching issues, and they were left with kind of a difficult spot because they had acquired some players, but none of them are impact players. Talking about Lance Lynn and Joe Kelly, talking about Ahmed Rosario and Kike Hernandez. Didn't look like much, right? Lynn had the highest ERA in the majors, most home runs allowed in the majors. He has since made two really good starts for the Dodgers, one on Sunday Night Baseball against the Padres. Joe Kelly, he'll be a little up and down always, I guess, but he'll contribute to that bullpen. And Rosario and Hernandez have done exactly what the Dodgers wanted them to do, which was help their right-handed lineup. So these teams, while it seems like they didn't do a whole lot or didn't do all that they wanted, they still came out of it okay. But the real issue for me concerns teams that fail to get starting pitching help. And I guess the Dodgers would count in that group because – They didn't get much or anything beyond Lance Lynn. But I'm really talking about the Reds. I'm talking about the Diamondbacks. The Braves, to a certain extent, though they were really only looking for depth. And I'm talking about the Red Sox. I wrote about the Red Sox on Monday and Heimblum's approach at the deadline. I know a lot of their fans are frustrated, and I understand where they're coming from. This is a team that, yes, it did not have great postseason chances, great odds, at the time of the deadline, but they needed starting pitching, didn't get it. Now they've got Sale coming back and Trevor Story this week, Tanner Howe, Garrett Whitlock eventually. Okay. And if those guys stay healthy, in my view, the Red Sox still can be okay. But you needed starting pitching, you didn't get it. Same with the Reds, same with the Diamondbacks. Now, the one thing I will say on behalf of all of these teams, and the one thing that 
fans have a hard time maybe seeing because they're so focused on their own club is that the market was indeed terrible. It was really thin on starting pitchers and especially controllable starting pitchers, guys you can have for multiple years. Only one of them really was moved. I'm not counting the Mets $43.3 million twins, Justin Verlander and Max Scherzer. They're in a separate category. Scherzer became a multi-year guy when he agreed not to opt out. Verlander did have a year left. They're different. They're so expensive, and those deals were so unusual, I don't really see them as controllable starting pitchers in the classic sense. The one that was traded was Aaron Savali. He went from Cleveland to Tampa Bay. Kind of a coup for Tampa Bay, but they gave up a really good prospect, Kyle Manzardo, to get him. And then there's Lance Lynn, who has an $18 million club option. He's controllable. I don't know, at the time of the trade, the Dodgers thought they'd ever pick up that option. They might be reconsidering that now. We'll see how that turns out. But those kinds of pitchers were not available. Now, that said, the Reds have a really young staff. He started a kid yesterday in his major league debut, gave up home runs on his first two pitches. First two pitches. The Diamondbacks, they addressed their bullpen. They acquired Tommy Pham, but they didn't get a starter. They have a lot of young starters as well behind Gallon and Kelly. They needed that. And the Red Sox, I've addressed already. We talked about them. We know they needed starting pitching. In this market, with the supply so limited, and with the rentals, okay, but no top of the rotation difference makers in that group, someone was going to get shut out. Certain teams were going to miss. The Orioles did not miss. They got their guy. The Phillies got their guy. And credit to those teams that did act and get starting pitchers. The Rangers, of course, with Montgomery on top of Scherzer. But it was simple market dynamics that created an atmosphere in which not everyone was going to get what they wanted. And while I'm not excusing the teams that did not get the starting pitching help that they needed, and remember, Dylan Cease, controllable, not traded. Mitch Keller, controllable, not traded. The Seattle Youngsters, not traded. So none of those guys went because the prices were so high. And yet, if you're the Reds, you're running out of pitching. If you're the Diamondbacks, you're in that same range. And even the Orioles, sure, they got Jack Flaherty. They're going to have issues in September and maybe October with innings limits and guys getting tired and all of that. They've already demoted Tyler Wells. So the market contributed to a lot of this. And, of course, in some cases, it's fair to criticize the front offices for not having the foresight and maybe the courage to go out and get the starting pitching that they needed. All of this is still yet to play out in full. I always say this about trades. You can't evaluate them in the moment. You can't evaluate them after two weeks. And really, the only time you can start evaluating is once the season ends and we know what happened with that particular outcome for that particular team. Did they make the playoffs or not? That said, we've seen some interesting early trends. and We'll be tracking them as the season continues. Dude and Dork of the Week, I'm going to throw a little bit of a curveball at you this week, but we'll get to that. We're going to start off with the Dude of the Week. This is a pretty straight choice. Not necessarily a shocker if you're paying attention. But this guy was a 28th round draft choice. 28th round doesn't even exist anymore. This was in 2017. came out of Eastern High School in Voorhees, New Jersey. I'm talking about Davis Schneider, who came up for the Blue Jays and just was on fire all weekend. Let's look at what he did. 9 for 13, 
9 for 13 to start his major league career. As you can see, that's the most, or tied with Kochler triplet for the most in a player's first three career games since 1901. Davis Schneider, Coker triplet. So Davis Schneider does this for the Jays. He's got 21 homers at AAA, 969 OPS. They could not deny him. He came up, made an immediate impact. Davis Schneider, you are the dude of the week. Now, my dork of the week, this is where the curveball comes in. It's the fans of the Philadelphia Phillies for going soft with their surprising, out-of-nowhere support of their $300 million struggling man, Trey Turner. Now, I went to school in Philly. I worked two years in South Jersey, the Courier Post, right outside of Philly. So I know Philly a little bit. When I was in college, I attended a Giants-Eagles game at Veterans Stadium, since demolished. I was a Giants fan. I rolled up in my orange Ford Granada with New York plates into the vet parking lot, and people were throwing rocks and bottles at my car. That's the Philly I know. When I turned professional, turned professional like I'm a player, when I became a writer, started working, my second job was, as I mentioned, the Courier Post in New Jersey, covered Mike Schmidt. One day, I got to go to the Phillies. That wasn't my regular beat. And it was the day after he was quoted by a Canadian reporter as calling Philly fans a mob scene, uncontrollable, beyond help. Schmidt took the field that day in a wig, shoulder-length wig, and sunglasses because he so much feared the fans' wrath. That's the Philly I know. And then I go last year. I write a column saying Joe Girardi should not be fired. From the moment that column was published until the end of the World Series and even beyond, Phillies fans have been all over me, and I must say, rightly so. They were right, and I was wrong. That's the Philly I know. This Philly? This is like Kansas City. Midwest nice. You guys are losing your reputation, man. You've gone softer than a soft pretzel. Philly fans, dorks of the week. It's been hot and sunny everywhere lately, so protecting your eyes is really important, which is why I want to tell you about our new sponsor, Shady Rays. Now, Shady Rays is an independent sunglasses company that has a world-class product that is just as good as all the expensive sunglasses that are out there. They have durable frames, extremely clear optics for outdoor adventures, and what really separates them is the best protection plan in the industry. If you lose or break your pair, even on day one, they will send you a brand new pair with no questions asked. And if you don't love your Shady Rays, you can exchange them for a new pair or return them within 30 days. So you can buy and wear your Shady Rays with the confidence that they have your back. Now, from building playsets for pediatric cancer patients to providing young adults with MS the outdoor adventure of a lifetime, Shady Rays is helping communities all over the place. And this is why I'm really happy to be associated with them as well. Now, Shady Rays are giving out, at this moment, their best deal of the season. So go to ShadyRays.com and use this code, F-O-U-L, for 50% off two-plus pairs of polarized sunglasses. Try for yourself the shades rated five stars by over 250,000 people. Time now for Grilling Ken. Let's get to your questions. This one comes from Rocky Joe Shields, and Rocky asks, do you miss the waiver trade deadline? With expanded playoffs, it feels like more teams might be out of it and some bigger trades happen. It's a good question. And my friend Jason Stark in The Athletic last week after the deadline 
raised the question of should this deadline be pushed back to August 15th, perhaps, to give teams more clarity, give them more of a chance to figure out who they are by that date, and then we can see from there what teams want to do. The waiver deadline, from a personal standpoint, was a major pain in the rear. I hated it. And I hated it, and this is selfish on my part, not because trades were made. Trades are always fun. But if you remember who went on waivers and who was claimed, it was all confidential. And oh my gosh, trying to get that information was like trying to get something out of the CIA. And then it also just continued trading season and it just kind of dragged on and on and there was no break. That's my selfish personal reasons. From the standpoint of the sport, it was just confusing. And the waiver process as a whole was this Byzantine, complicated mess. And it just led to a lot of different kinds of issues. That said, what Jason wrote about pushing the deadline back and maybe giving teams more time, it's something he basically concluded should not happen based on this year's deadline, which was a little bit unusual. But it's something we need to watch in the coming years because if more teams being in it leads to less of a sexy July 31st, August 1st deadline, then baseball will need to revisit this question. And it's an interesting question. I've always liked the fact that you have two months to go after the deadline. You have to make a decision after four months and then two months left and you have to figure it out. August 15th, there'd be only six weeks left. It's just a little bit different, the dynamic. I'm not sure it would be beneficial. But again, something to watch because, as you mentioned, Rocky, the expanded playoffs have changed the entire way teams approach the postseason picture and the deadline. Next question comes from Austin LeClear. Austin says, is the NL Central the most interesting division race? I would have to answer yes. And it's become all the more interesting because of the Cubs' surge. 13-3 roll right now, going into Monday's play. 13-3. Sahadev Sharma of The Athletic wrote today about their offense and just how it has carried them through this latest push that they're on they have a real chance of winning the division. And this shows the value sometimes of keeping a team together and not just conceding because the playoff odds are not necessarily great. The Cubs were playing better at the deadline, decided to keep the team together. Looks good right now. What's interesting about this race is that the Reds, it seems to me, are fading. Now, I don't say that just because they've lost the sixth straight, but as I mentioned in the previous segment, they're kind of running out of pitching. They've got more kids. Yes, I get it. But it's going to be really tough for them, even with Hunter Green and Nick Lodolo coming back, to sort of get through the season. And we're assuming those guys are going to come back healthy. Then there are the Brewers, who did some things at the deadline that I really liked. Carlos Santana, Mark Canna, Andrew Chafin, good moves. Brandon Woodruff came back on Sunday, looked great. They are still the team to beat, in my estimation. But the Brewers are not so good where you say, whoa, can't touch them. So Cubs, Brewers, Reds, it's going to be interesting right to the finish. Okay, next question comes from Nick Tim. Nick asks, who is your current American League Rookie of the Year, and do you think it'll finish that way? Nick, if I had to say this before Sunday, I probably would have said Josh Young and the Texas Rangers. But on Sunday, Josh suffered a fractured left thumb, really unfortunate. He's going to be out for some time. We'll see just how long. So without him dominated the picture, and I'm not even sure he was dominating. It's a very 
large group of candidates. And I want to take a look at some of those names right now, and you'll see just how close this race is. These are just the hitters. I'm excluding Yenier Cano of the Orioles, the great reliever, the all-star. He's had a tremendous season. But look at these OPSs for different American League rookies, minimum 250 plate appearances. That's Luke Raley of the Rays. He's the top guy in OPS, 862. Yoshida of the Red Sox. You might have a funny feeling about Japanese players who are major leaguers over there coming over and being rookies here. Whatever. He's got an 847 OPS. He's had a great year. Tristan Cassis has really come on. 832 OPS. Josh Young next, 813. Gunnar Henderson of the Orioles, 808. The lowest of that group, and yet probably, I don't even know if it's probably, the best defensive player along with Young. And a guy who has meant an awful lot to a first-place team, a team with the best record in the American League. So I would say this comes down to the final six weeks or eight weeks, wherever we are now. And we'll see who plays the best. Josh Young probably will not get it now because he's going to miss so much time. But it's a really good race, really great crop of rookies in the American League. And finally, a two-part question from Luke. Luke asks, were you named after Ken the Barbie doll? And second, have you seen the movie and what are your thoughts? Luke, I was not named after Ken the Barbie doll. Now granted, I was born at a time when I guess Barbie was popular and it's conceivable that my mother would have said, mm, let's name him after, no, she did not do that. My dad did not do that. Not named after Ken. And I have not seen the Barbie movie and I will not see the Barbie movie. I'm out on that. I'm not going to see any movie during the season anyway. Thanks for the question, though. Looking ahead this Saturday on Fox, we've got Braves at Mets. Well, one of those two teams is worth watching. And I would imagine when the Fox schedule makers put together their schedule, they were thinking, wow, this will be a really fun matchup. It might have been before the Mets traded Scherzer, Verlander, Tommy Pham, Mark Kana, David Robertson. Now it's not looking so sexy, but we're going to get a look Certainly at the Braves MVP candidates, Acuna being the leading one. But Matt Olson, do not overlook him. He's had an amazing year as well. So that's coming up. Now next week, there will be no show, no fair territory. I'm taking a week off. So we'll be back with you in two weeks. And I want to thank everyone, as always, for their questions, for listening. You can watch us and subscribe to us on YouTube. You can listen to us on well, wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe to us that way as well. We will talk to you guys in two weeks. Thanks again. Hey, FT Live fam. If you're new to the party on the BetMGM Sports app, enter the promo code FOUL, F-O-U-L, for up to $1,000 back if your first bet loses. It's simple. Ready? Download the BetMGM Sports app on iOS or Android or visit BetMGM.com. Sign up and deposit into your newly created account. Place your first bet offer and receive up to $1,000 back in bonus bets if it loses. If the bet does lose, your bonus bets will be available once the wager is settled. Gotta use the bonus code, Foul.